Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Maywood, Illinois, to discuss long-term outcomes after prolonged mechanical ventilation. Great. Um, So before we get started, uh, could you please introduce yourself? Yes, I'm, uh, I'm Al Jabra, professor of medicine at Loyola University in Chicago. I'm also the section chief of pulmonary and critical care medicine at the Heinz VA Hospital. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us today. Um, today we'll be discussing your article, uh, which was published in the Blue Journal in the June 2019 issue entitled Long-Term Outcomes After Prolonged Mechanical Ventilation a long-term acute care hospital study. Um, So maybe you could tell us why you performed the study? Sure. Um, In our randomized trial that we did at an LTAC in ventilated patients, we've reported that about 45% of the patients were alive one year later after discharge. Because these survivors are expected to be weak, we wondered about the long-term impact of the weakness on their functional recovery and overall quality of life up to one year after they were discharged from the LTAC. Also, because the long-term outcome of these patients is perceived by many as being poor and the weaning process is so daunting, some clinicians wonder what is even worthwhile to provide prolonged mechanical ventilation. But very few studies have directly asked the patient that question. So we wanted to assess patients' willingness to undergo mechanical ventilation again. And that's really the rationale of why we did the study. Great, and what were your primary objectives? So the primary objective was to uh, quantify the uh, muscle function, the quality of life in patients at six during their hospitalization and at six and twelve months, and to look to see what is the role of muscle function in um, in in their quality of life, in affecting or impacting their quality of life. Great. And so, how did you perform your study, and how does it differ from prior studies on the same topic? Okay. Well, our study was the first study to provide longitudinal measurements of survival, muscle function, and its impact on quality of life in patients from the time, in ventilated patients, from the time they arrive at an LTEC up to one year after discharge. And also, to minimize our dropouts, the assessments after discharge were performed for the most part at uh, patients' residence. And what were your primary findings? So the primary findings were, well, first of all, is we found that 54% of the patients were detached from the ventilator at the time of discharge from the LTAC, and that 67% of those patients were still alive one year later. So in terms of the the muscle strength, when we looked at the respiratory muscle strength, we used PI max as our measure, we found that it was well-maintained 
whereas the peripheral muscle strength, which we assessed using the hand grip, was severely impaired throughout the LTAC hospitalization. Then between discharge and six months, the muscle function improved and 78% of the patients were able to do daily activities without assistance. And finally, 85% of the patients were willing to undergo mechanical ventilation again if deemed necessary. So were you surprised by these findings? Because the, compared to the data you provided at the beginning of this podcast, it seems a bit better than anticipated. Absolutely. The one thing that we, first of all, I mean, to me, the three things that surprised me. First of all, more than half the patients were weaned or detached from the ventilator by the time they, can't, they left the LTAC, number one. And number two is their survival, that 67 were still alive one year later. Now, remember, these patients received mechanical ventilation for an average of 55 days. And despite, you know, this is combining the ICU stay as well as the LTAC, the LTAC days on the ventilator. Uh, and that 67 were still alive one year later was, to me, very surprising. And then, and then finally, not only are they alive, but they're functionally independent, and most were living at home. And obviously the biggest surprise that 85% would still do it again. So you mentioned at the beginning that uh, this was a single-center study, um, and some clinicians may say, well, maybe there's something unique about your um, study population, and they may ask, are these results generalizable to uh, their setting? Maybe you could uh, tell us about the types of patients uh, that were enrolled in this study and what their comorbid illnesses were and the reasons for mechanical ventilation. So our study, this was your typical patients that go to an LTAC, to any LTAC. And so in terms of their diagnosis, it's a mixed picture between, I'd say the predominant were either post-op failures, you know, like post-op complications from post-op or acute uh, lung injury, ARDS, pneumonia. That was the majority of the patients. We had COPD, about 10%, and the rest or neurological problems. So our patient population mixture is typical. It's a mixed what you would see in other LTACs. So that so our LTAC is representative of other LTACs. Other evidence to support that there was a study that was published in 23 LTACs by Scheinhor and all. 23 LTACs involving 1,400 patients who received prolonged mechanical ventilation, and and they enrolled 90% of the patients that were transferred at those 23 different sites. And their weaning rate was comparable to our weaning rate. So we believe our LTAC is representative of other LTACs. Great. And so how would you interpret your findings, and what do you think are your study limitations? So in terms of interpreting our findings is, um, I mean, specifically we can talk about the, resp- the, the muscle findings, and then I can give you what's the, the message, the clinical, I think, the take-home message for clinicians, if that's okay with you. 
I think that's a great approach. Thanks. So, first of all, what we found is that the respiratory muscles were better preserved than the limb muscles throughout the the admission throughout the LTAC hospitalization. And we believe this probably because the respiratory muscles are contracting around the clock because these patients were on the ventilators. You always have to trigger the ventilator, so you're doing some work. Where, on the other hand, your limb muscles were almost completely inactive throughout the ICU and the early part of the LTAC state, so they were more predisposed to develop atrophy and weakness. So that's one thing. The other thing we found is that the, although the respiratory muscles was preserved, they did not improve during the LTAC state, whereas the peripheral muscles improved, and they continued to improve from after discharge. And we postulate that probably the reason for that is because the patients at an LTAC were getting rehab. And these, they had whole body exercises three to five times a week, specifically targeting the limb muscles, whereas rehab targeting the respiratory muscles was not provided. And then furthermore, after discharge, the, the hand grip by six months was almost normal. It, it went from being 20% of predicted from the time of admission to an LTAC to almost 81% at six months. And we, we postulate again that the improvement in the hand grip strip so much probably reflects patients as getting better, but also they, the rehab they got even post-discharge. Because half of our patients, when they leave the LTAC, went to a, to a, either an acute or a subacute rehab. And so they received more rehab uh, even post-discharge. And I think that's what probably helped them to get back to where they were, where they're almost back to normal. Now, the other thing, so, and we think that because the muscle strength improved, their functional recovery improved. And that's why patients were able to do their ADL almost independent by six months. So they're kind of all related together. So now, so what's the, the, the take-home message from all of this? Again, as I said, it was, we were surprised by the outcome of the patients, that how many were detached, and, and once they're detached, how will they do? So I think as clinicians, we need to change our mindset on how we manage patients in the ICU who repeatedly fail weaning. Usually when we decide that the patient is not going to be quick for that patient, we start thinking about transferring the patient to a weaning facility or to an LTAC. But as you know, it takes time to do that transfer because of all the administrative stuff. So then what happens, physicians may become less aggressive in their weaning uh, attempts. And we know that because in our study, we we found that one-third of the patients who were transferred to the LTAC were weaned off from the day of arrival. In other words, as soon as they came in, we put them on a tray collar, and they never required being. We just let them stay on the tray collar, and they were weaned. So I think the message is that it's important for us in the ICU to continue to identify which patients is likely to be detached 
and the best way to do this is to keep doing trials of unassisted breathing, either with a T-piece or with a trach collar. As we showed in our randomized trial, that weaning time was faster with a trach collar than with pressure support. So I think that is the big message, is try to identify as early as possible and continue to identify patients who have a chance of being weaned and not to give up on these patients. Yeah, so those are really interesting findings. So as a clinician in the ICU, the question that came to my mind as you were talking was, are there certain risk factors that you identified in the intensive care unit, for example, steroids or neuromuscular blockade, that predisposed patients to requiring that made them have to go to the ALTAC, and could we work on those? And then the other question was, uh, you mentioned that um, a lot of patients didn't receive any exercises or peripheral muscle exercises in, during the ICU care, and should we be more aggressive about that uh, uh, while they're still in our intensive care units? So, I mean, the, the, the first question you're saying is the neuromuscular blockades and steroids affect their muscle strength. Is that what's the first question? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we didn't look at that because our study started the day they enter the after the ICU, so the day they enter the LTEC. But of course, as you all know, there's a bunch of studies to show uh, that muscle strength, peripheral muscle strength, there's a relationship between steroid use, neuromuscular blockade, and of course, sepsis itself is is a major uh, problem with in terms of um, muscle weakness. Obviously, the earlier we get the patients moving, the better it is for the patient. And so to me, our study even further emphasizes rehab is very important in these patients. But the problem, as you all know, in the ICU, our patients are too sick for the PT people to come and work on them. Because, you know, they're either on pressors or they're on high oxygen. But once a patient has stabilized, and I think we need to start thinking about moving them quicker than we do. But it's it's challenging in the ICU. But to me, at an LTEC is ideal for that because we, the critical part of the illness is under control. And this way, the physical therapist can actually do more with them than they can in an ICU setting. Great. So what were your limitations in the study? Um, and... Uh, do you think any of them uh, could be addressed in future studies? So, I mean, what the the top part of of doing a long a longitudinal study in critically ill patients who were on the vent for a while is the dropout rate. And, I mean, as you know, the major reason for our dropout rate is death. More than half of the patients were de- di- died by twelve months. So it's important to try to get as much data as we can in the patients who survive. And so we were only able to get like muscle strength and face-to-face interviews with 60% of the survivors. And the main reason why we miss those measurements is because either the patient refused or they lived more than 50 miles away from our institution or they were at and in other institutions, whether it's a rehab, skills nursing facilities. And for whatever reason, for legal reasons, the RRB would not allow us to do this. 
So I think if I have to do it over again, I would figure out ways where I can increase the number of data on on our survivors. Somehow figure out how to get to other institutions so that we can see the patient face-to-face and do those measurements. And the other thing, if patients live that far away, figure out a mechanism where we can meet them halfway or, you know, so that we don't lose because that data in the survivors is so valuable and, again, half of them die. So that, to me, is the one thing. Second thing I think we did not do, which I would do better, is to figure out what happened uh, during any intervening events during the follow-up period. In other words, after they left RML, which was our LTAC, they either went to acute rehab, subacute. Then to follow these patients, see you know what happened to them, how many had to require hospitalization. I mean, we kind of vaguely asked the patients, but we didn't do it consistently because I think that could have an impact on their outcome. And helps us explain why maybe some patients did better than others. So that would be the other thing I would do. And then an interesting finding was that. Um, of patients who were attached or did detached um, from the ventilator at discharge, if you were detached from the ventilator at LTAC discharge, you had a 67% chance of being alive at a year um, versus if you were still attached to the ventilator at discharge from the LTAC, you only had a 16% chance of being alive. Yeah. Um, and what uh, do you think explains those findings and what could we uh, do better to uh, move the patients from being uh, attached to the ventilator at Altec discharge to being detached from the ventilator at Altec discharge? Move them from being ventilator attached to ventilator detached. Somehow be able physiologically to move them is what I meant by that. Is because if you leave an Altec on the ventilator, it's really your prognosis is extremely, extremely poor. And the reason why is because they never come off. And so they stay on the ventilator. At least the majority of our ventilator-attached patients remained attached at six months or they died. So the key, question, the key thing is how do we convert these ventilator, soon-to-be-ventilator-attached patients to being ventilator-detached when they arrive at the LTAC or, for that matter, in the ICU. And if we're looking at... Uh, muscles, I mean, obviously, in the non-survivors, which to me the non-survivors are really ventilator-attached patients at 12 months, the big difference is that they're weak, both respiratory and peripheral muscles. That really um, separated them out. I mean, it was significant that they were much weaker. So obviously it goes back again to the muscle strength. Now, we do a good job at the LTAC in improving the peripheral muscles, but, you know, we did not focus at all on rehabbing the respiratory muscles. Although they were well-maintained, they were still higher in the ventilator-detached person than the ventilator-attached person. So we can do a better job in terms of improving the respiratory muscle. I mean, the other thing was like their SAP and Apache score. Well, we can't do much about that because that's a reflection of the patient's critical illness. So I think the all the modifiable facts that we can do as clinicians is somehow to improve their muscle strength, their total, the global muscle strength. And like some of the things you mentioned, 
try to get them off steroids, avoid neuromuscular blockade if you can, and moving. Get the patients, you know, moving. Well, for the benefit of clinicians um, who don't have the experience of working in an ALTAC, maybe you could share with us uh, three or four strategies that you'll employ on a day-to-day basis uh, during the rehab of these patients that actually gets them to the point where they get uh, detached? So, I, I mean, obviously, number one, you have to make sure the, you know, the critical illness has improved so that, you know, they're off pressors, their uh, sepsis is under control, their COPD, you know, they're not fighting the ventilator, they're on, they're on uh, like 40% FI2, the usual stuff. So then what we do in our ICU, and I'm sure our ICU, like any other ICU, we have patients who've been on the ventilator for 14 days or more, you know. So then what we do is as soon as we think they're clinical stable, we start getting weaning parameters, and we look at their F over VT, if their F, the uh, frequency tidal volume ratio. If their F over VT is below 100, we put them on a T-piece. They do fine. We extubate them. And that works in about 75% of the patients. In the 25%, the ones you're referring to is are the more problematic. So in those patients, we keep trying to do daily trials. And then if they re- repeatedly, what we do if, for example, I put them on a T-piece. If they keep failing day one, day two, day three, I get a guess. And I see why are they failing. Is it because of hypercapnia or hypoxia? And if it's a blood gas problem, well, you can fix that easily. You'll figure they're hypercapnic because they have bronchospasm, so you try to work on the airways, or they're being overly sedated, so you back up on the sedation. If they're hypoxic, you make sure that they're not fluid overload with diuresis, or make sure it's not cardiac. But most often, it's neither the blood gas is not a problem, it's just the work of breathing, and it's usually the load on the respiratory muscles. So then we, we, at that time, this is when I get very aggressive with our PT department. And I say, please come start working with these patients. Again, I get pushback from our PT department because they said, oh, they're on a ventilator. They're going to desaturate, so they're not as aggressive. Um, then once you get them trached, then they, the, the physical therapy people become more and more aggressive. So in terms of the rehab, we start first just with what every, you know, the typical um, PT world does. You know, first we do bed exercises, passive range of motion in the bed, then they do more uh, resistance in the bed. Then as they slowly, you know, if they're able to do bed mobility, then they start doing transfers. In other words, moving from supine to sitting in the bed. The next thing we advance them from uh, sit to stand, and if we're fortunate enough, then we're walking. Although I have to tell you, we hardly have anybody walking in our ICU. And usually, we this is when we, you know, usually they're transferred before to another uh, to a rehab facility just because the ICU can't, you know, cannot cope with all these patients. Uh, that's pretty useful information for our um, ATS clinicians. And then once they get to the ALTAC, um, what interventions are in place uh, to get them off the uh, ventilator? 
So at the LTAC, it's so they come in, right? And they're they're evaluated by three different kinds of rehab. They're evaluated by three that's three different arms of the rehab services: the physical or occupational therapist, the speech therapist, and we also have a psychologist. So they all these patients get all these evaluations, and then. The, each decide what kind of therapy and what is the goal of the patient. Of course, they're on the ventilator, then the pulmonary people are involved, the physicians. And what we do is we put them on a tray color, put everybody on a tray color when they come and see how well they do. And uh, if they do well, we keep them off the tray color. If not, we put them back on the vent, let them rest on assist control, and the next day we keep trying again and again. And we do this, you know, till they come off. And from our first study that we published in JAMA, we showed if you do that and you can compare that with pressure support, you get them off the ventilator five to seven days quicker. So that's why we we advocate trick color is really the best way to wean these patients. And I try to do that as a clinician at an LTAC. So that's the weaning part. So then the rehab part. So what they do, then the rehab people, they go and evaluate the patient. And they see, obviously, each patient comes as a different functional level. You have the low functional, you have the medium, and the high functional. High functional is less than 10% of the patients. In other words, that when they can evaluate them on admission, the patient can actually stand by himself. So, you know, that's very, very rare. So most of the patients, they kind of need, you know, they're in the moderate function. And again, they go through, they think, if they think a patient can sit at the edge of the bed uh, without any problems, then they slowly advance. And they they kind of follow the same protocol that in the ICU, bed exercises, then transfer exercises, and then finally mobility. And they will see, they'll see the patient's, if the patient is stable enough, they'll see him five days a week. Sometimes if they're high function, they even see him six days a week, depending on, obviously, the patient and the resources. And, and the problem is these patients, there's so many services there, there's sometimes not even enough time for everybody to come and see them. But that's what they do. Great. So um, one last question that a clinician may have about your study is the so-called uh, Hawthorne effect. Um, where uh, because you're doing a study and people are watching, uh, the outcomes may be better than anticipated. Um, how would uh, did you think that played a role in your study, and how would you uh, mitigate it in future studies? Well, I mean, it's it, the the way the study was done. We tried to the one thing we could because we first did a randomized trial comparing the two weaning modes. So we had. Our cohort is 500 patients. So the patients who met our criteria were enrolled in the study. And that's the patients that we followed up for the follow-up thing. So in terms of people being biased about their outcome, I just I think that is not a problem because, again, we're looking at dead or alive, off the vent, that, the ventilator detachment or attachment at the time they left the LTAC, so it's not like we had the wiggle room. Either by the time you left the door, were you attached to the ventilator or were you detached? So it's not a question of how did you call ventilator attached, ventilator detached. So we were pretty strict about that. And then the 
communications that were alive, it was their perception about things. So it wasn't any 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 bias from the investigators who were doing this. Plus, the when they were in the hospital, the weaning was mostly done by the respiratory therapist, so they were spending time with these patients. But then after they weaned or didn't wean, when we went to their houses, it was uh, our research assistants who were doing the measurements who had no idea what you know, what patients, were they randomized, not randomized, or nothing. So I think we took a lot of effort to make sure that our, you know, that we could not be biased. So I don't, I just don't see that as a problem, to be honest. Great. Uh, good response. So in terms of um, the impact of your study, how do you think it advances our understanding, and how do you think it's going to affect either future clinical research or clinical practice? Well, I hope. I hope that clinicians don't give up on these patients in the ICU. I think, to me, the big message I would like to get out there is, is keep weaning these patients and don't give up on them because if we get them off, they do fantastic. So, I mean, we all have this negative perception, including me, before I did the study. I'm like, you know, sometimes are we torturing these patients by prolonging the event when the outcome is going to be so bad? But it obviously is not once we work hard and, and we can get them off. So that, to me, is the is the big message, which I am hoping will uh, will change the the care in the ICU because it's really the ICU that determines whether the patient comes to the LTAC. And so that, to me, is the one message. Second, in terms of future things, what would we need to figure out is, as I told you before, how we can convert a ventilator-attached person to become a ventilator-detached person. And so we need more studies to figure out the mechanism and how we can do that and how we can figure out what, makes a patient unweanable versus a patient that's weanable. And that's where the future, I think, is, is to do that. And also to do more uh, outcome studies. I mean, there's hardly been any prospective randomized studies in an LTAC. And, you know, an LTACs are everywhere now. And so we need more studies in that patient population. Definitely. And what I found pretty intriguing, as you mentioned before, was that 85% of the survivors who um, uh, made a statement that they were willing to undergo mechanical ventilation again, um, and I thought that was a pretty high number and pretty impressive. And in your discussion, you mentioned that uh, two-thirds of them had no memory of being mechanically ventilated, so that may have factored in. One um, the question that came into my mind was, Maybe the patient doesn't remember it, but maybe their family does, and maybe that influences whether or not they want their family member to undergo ventilation again. Um, so my question was, what kind of support should we provide to family members um, uh, uh, during this uh, really critical period, um, and, and what has your experience been? I tell you, the number one problem, because, you know, we talk to these patients when we went to their houses and when we talk to them when they're in the hospital, is communication. We just need to communicate with the family more 
That's what their big frustrations. And by the way, that's the big frustrations of the patients too when we ask them, the ones who remember what was the one thing that you hated about mechanical ventilation. He goes, unable to communicate. So if there's anything that we do poorly at, even though we may think we're doing a better job than we did, we're still not there, is to communicate with the patient and with the family, to explain to the family what the patient is going to go through, to explain to the family what weaning is, to explain to them how we can let them breathe on their own and how they feel. That's what I think is the big supporting, is to communicate better to the family, to know their expectations and to know what uh, the expectations and what we think the patient is going through as they're making decisions about things. I think it's a really important message. Um, As we draw to the end of this podcast, um, I I just wanted to offer you the opportunity um, uh, to let the ATS community know about any topics or any points that we haven't considered or talked about thus far? Yeah. the I, I would like to mention one last thing, if I may, is I think the one of the criticisms of our study that we kind of touched at, that it was done in a single LTAC. And so people question about how generalizable our study is to patients. And I, If I may, I would just like to express my view on that. We purposely did the study at the single center. And now generalizability is the same thing as is also is external validity. And that is the ultimate, ultimate goal of of research. Uh, But when you're talking about generalizability, there's really two fundamental questions. First, are the results of the study true? In other words, is the study internally valid? And the major, major obstacle to internal validity is systematic error. This can be better controlled in a single center where the patient selection and patient care is uniform. And that's the main reason why we did a single center. Second, fine, are the study results likely to apply in other study settings or samples. That is, are the study results externally valid? But whether or not those internally valid results will then be broadly generalized to other settings and other populations is a matter of judgment. So really the generalizability of the study depends on the ability of a researcher to separate out the relevant from the irrelevant facts and then carry forward a judgment. And this concept is is straight out of uh, Kenneth Rothman, who is the father of uh, modern epidemiology. For instance, we draw inferences from RCTs every day, even though these studies have specific inclusion and exclusion criteria, rather than being a population probability samples. So really the authenticity of generalization is decided ultimately by informed judgment. But of course, I'd like to end by saying the ultimate way to confirm the generalizability of our findings is to replicate the results in another group of patients in different settings. But to emphasize again, the fact that our ventilator detach rates at our LTAC was virtually identical 
to the study in 23 LTACs in over 1,400 patients really supports that our results are probably generalizable to other LTACs. Well, and well, I end with that. Oh, that's a perfect ending. Um, I just want to thank you so much uh, for joining us, and um, I really enjoyed reading about your study and, most importantly, about the discussion that we've had um, and your insights that you've provided. And I hope that our ATS community um, uh, appreciate them as much as I do. Thank you, Amal. A big thank you to Dr. Amal Gibran, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.